0: Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning that we might hear from you your very words, Lord. Bring us the words of life. And as in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's still Easter. We have to we have to remind ourselves, because I know that a lot of people who who are new to the Anglican tradition uh, are, are maybe a little frazzled by the fact that we're we're still saying hallelujah, we're still saying it's Easter. We're still reading uh, Easter passages. Uh, buckle down, we're, we're just getting started. Uh, there's actually weeks and weeks of this. Uh, we're going to be celebrating the Easter season until June 9th, which is, which is Pentecost. And then we're going to celebrate even more things. It's going to be great. Um, but this is, this is who we are. We are a, a feasting people. In fact, um, what I love about Easter is this is a season in which our fasting The fasting which we have been doing throughout Lent is now transformed into feasting. The lessons that you've learned in Lent, you now get to bring into the light of Easter resurrection. You get to try them out. You get to walk in this new life. In fact, I've been using the metaphor of a house throughout Lent uh, in inviting Jesus to come and examine the framework of our homes uh, we've we've been inviting Jesus to to maybe replace the rotting beams that are in our homes of our souls maybe to install new windows to let new light in to install a new chandelier perhaps And I think this metaphor continues into Easter time now it's time to invite people over now it's time to feast and I mean this in a in a spiritual sort of metaphorical sense but maybe I also mean this in a very literal real sense Have people over to your home. Celebrate the resurrection with one another. Because here's the thing. I want you to feast with just as much intentionality that you were fasting. So just as much planning that you had for maybe your Lenten fasting, I want you to enter into this Easter feasting with just as much planning and chatter and and discussion. In fact, maybe you discussed, maybe this last Lent was your first Lent, and so maybe you discussed things that you'd be giving up or maybe new practices that you would be taking on or new ways of generosity. Maybe you compared notes with some of your friends or your life groups. Well, do the same with your Easter feasting. Talk about this with one another. Challenge one another into new ways you can enter into this resurrection feast with one another. I was really delighted last week as we were packing up um, overhearing a lot of you in life groups were already planning your feast uh, that last Sunday after, afterwards. Some of you are like well my life group didn't do that. There's still time to do that. Okay, There's still time to do that. And if you're not in a life group invite people over anyway or, or invite yourself over to somebody's life group and get plugged in. Maybe you and your housemates should splurge uh, sometime this season and buy a really nice bottle of wine that you can share with one another. Maybe you and your family bake Easter cookies for the neighbors. Maybe you're not a flower person, but who knows? Maybe you go and you surprise yourself and bring home a bouquet of flowers and put them on your dining room table. Some of you are, are going to leave today and all you're going to think is, Rick just told me to spend a lot of money on wine. <laughs> There's a first. <laughs> but like I'm saying, how, I, I want you to go into this feast with just as much intentionality As you did with Lent. How can your feast be filled with beauty, with creativity, and with holiness this Easter season? So this is the great resurrection feast that we are in. This is a season in which we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture passages. In which Jesus is transforming the fasting, the wilderness of the disciples into feasting. He reveals himself as the risen Lord. And he's going to be gathering out uh, lessons from the Old Testament. Lessons from his old, from his own teachings, lessons from his death on the cross, and he's going to be bringing those into the light of his resurrection. And today, this passage from John chapter twenty is an excellent example of this. So you and I—we've we've had seven days to kind of rest. Maybe some of you are more rested than others. <laughs> um, you know, we, we've had time to kind of think about the fact that this is Easter now. But this passage begins on that same Easter Sunday. The disciples are still frazzled. In fact, if you, if you were here last week, you heard me talk about the fact that when the women came to the tomb, everything was in chaos. Nobody knew what was going on. The disciples by this point of this passage have now heard rumors of Jesus rising back to life. But the apostles themselves were not yet convinced. And we're still in that moment. It's still Easter morning in this passage here. So I want us to look at ways in which Jesus transforms their fasting, their confusion into feasting. Ways in which he transforms their wilderness wandering into table fellowship. And there's three ways in particular that I want to look at this this morning. Three ways in which the resurrection transforms our life. So first of all, that we find as we read this passage in John, The disciples are still hiding and they're consumed by fear. The text is pretty clear about that. Now remind yourself of what they had just witnessed. Remind yourself of the events of Holy Week. You know, Jesus on that Palm Sunday had rode into Jerusalem. The crowds claimed him to be the king. They're singing Hosanna to him, ready to enthrone him at that moment. And then one of the apostles, one of us essentially, Judas, betrayed Jesus over into the hands of the jealous religious leaders. And those leaders brought him to the Romans and demanded his crucifixion. And just like in any movie where the king is killed, all the right-hand men then flee, right? They flee the scene because they think, they think maybe, oh, we're going to be next. So here's a question for us. If, if you were, let's say, maybe one of the, the temple guards or, you know, let's say like a, like a Jewish, they didn't have soldiers, but, you know, let's, let's say you were um, someone who was kind of one of the henchmen of, of the high priests, and you were charged with finding the disciples how hard would that be how hard would it be to actually go and find the disciples now you know that they're men from small towns you know that they're from Galilee you know that they have these accents right And in fact we have a story elsewhere in scripture of the servant girl spotting Peter within seconds she just hears him talking she knows exactly who he is she knows he's one who's been following Jesus so again, how easy would it be for you to find one of these disciples? Maybe the high priest says, go to Nazareth, go to Capernaum, go to Cana, even Bethsaida. Find as many of these apostles, these sent ones, and bring them back here to me. Maybe he would issue a bounty to put on their heads. You see, maybe he would even recruit the, uh, the Romans. He would ask Pilate and tell Pilate, like, we need to wipe out this uprising because we only have one king, and that is Caesar. So you can understand the fear of the disciples that are gripping them. They know that hiding isn't the easiest thing to do in their world. And maybe right now, maybe they're actually devising a plan on how to flee Jerusalem without being caught. Would they go back home? Would they resume life back as usual? Would they flee to another country entirely? Who knows, but certainly those are questions that they're asking right now. And in the midst of this, in the midst of these conversations, in the midst of their fear... Jesus comes and stands among them. He stands among them. Can you imagine their reaction in that moment? Here they are, maybe even blaming and arguing one another with, for some of the, the things that have just transpired. And all of a sudden, the man who they saw crucified is standing there next to them. Peace be with you, he says. And all those rumors that they heard from the women are actually true. Here he is standing among them. You see, my first point is this. Jesus transforms our fear into joy. Transforms our fear into joy. And I love the kindness of Jesus in this moment. He isn't, he's he's not like shaming them in this moment. No, instead what he's doing is he's showing the disciples that in spite of their denial, in spite of their abandonment of him, they do not have the last word on the relationship. He's still there in the midst of all of that stuff. Here they are, they're, they're feeling like they're in the midst of war. War within their own hearts, war with one another, war with the political authorities, and Jesus stands and pronounces peace to them. Now, the word in, in the ESV, I, I, I normally don't, um, who am I to argue with our, our English translators, especially of, of the ESV, which is a wonderful translation, but it, it says there in verse 20 that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, I'm like glad, really glad. You look at the word, and like the word is actually used translated elsewhere as rejoice. So, for example, when Paul is in prison and, and he's saying that he rejoices in, in his chains, um, that's the word that he uses. When he when Paul is telling us as Christians to rejoice again, I say rejoice. This is the word he he says. So it's like why why are the translators using glad here? Like I hear the word glad, and I think. Yeah, I just ate a lot of turkey and I'm going to like sit down and lean back in my chair. Like that's, that to me is gladness. Like they're, they're rejoicing here. Like they're, they're so thrilled here that Jesus is with them. There's laughter. I'm sure there's singing. There's dancing. There's exuberance here. Jesus transforms our fear into joy. But it doesn't stop here. Jesus then commissions his disciples. Again, he pronounces peace to them. He does it a lot in this passage. But then he says, as the Father is sending me, so I am sending you. Now, if that's all he said this morning, that would actually be a bit of a problem. Uh, Just as I've been sent, I'm now sending you. And it would be a problem because the disciples know how this turns out. They'd probably be scratching their heads thinking, Jesus, we know your story and and you were killed. We're still figuring out this whole you standing here thing. Um, But... I don't know if if I want to be sent out in this way. And it's almost, you know, it's, it's almost worse right now because the political tension, like with the death of Jesus, everything's electric. Like the fear is through the roof right now. And so it's almost as if the disciples would be sent out in more tension than previously. And you would think that the temptation in this moment would be to muster up their own strength from within. And again, that would be a disaster because these disciples right now are still very weak. They're very scared. And as powerful as peace and as joy are, that alone cannot be the fuel for our mission. And so what does Jesus do in this moment? He breathes the Holy Spirit upon them. Just as God formed mankind from the dust and then breathes life into him, just as God gathered the dry bones in that valley in front of Ezekiel and breathed new life into them, so now Jesus, God incarnate, the man risen from the dead, breathes new life into the disciples. That same spirit that empowered and animated the ministry of Jesus now resides within the apostles. For what purpose? Why does he do this? God gives them breath. God gives us breath in order to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Wow. That's amazing. Do you you remember how mad The religious leaders were when jesus pronounced the forgiveness of sins it infuriated them that's one of the things that lit the whole fire to begin with and now jesus says you have the authority to do this oh my goodness like the religious leader said only god can forgive sins and now god through jesus is passing that on to his apostles that is to his church we have that spiritual authority to do the same so my second point is this Jesus transforms our weakness into spiritual authority. And friends, we actually get to experience this every single Sunday. Every Sunday, we gather here to to praise God, to lift up his name, to sing songs to him, to hear from his word. But we also come here every single Sunday to deal with our own sin. We do soul work here every single Sunday. After the sermon, we're going, to pronounce, we're going to read the creed together, we're going to pray for the church and for the world, and then we're going to confess our sins. We're going to lay down our burdens of guilt that, that have been piling up, that are bothering us, our burdens of sh- shame, our, our burdens of disgust. We're going to lay all of those down before the Lord. And then we're going to hear the spiritual forgiveness pronounced by me, the priest, as an officer of the church, as someone who's had, my, who's had hands laid upon me, um, given the authority of the church to pronounce this forgiveness, but then it doesn't stop there. You, us, we as the forgiven people of God, are then sent out to proclaim this forgiveness into the world, into those around us. We get to go into the workplace, to our neighbors, and say, these burdens don't hold you anymore. These chains don't have to hold you back anymore. Sin has been defeated at the cross. Friends, we get to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And what an honor that is. We get to live absolutely transparent lives so that when people are looking at us it's not us that they're looking at but they see jesus christ crucified they see the power of his resurrection the power of his forgiveness in and through us and we get to be ambassadors of that we get to be reflections of that jesus transforms our weakness our weakness into spiritual authority that is a chilling but exciting thing that should just get our blood just coursing through our veins in the morning and what does that look like for you? What does that look like in the workplace? Who in your life needs to hear that message of forgiveness? How can you, how can you represent that to them? I know there's people in your lives right now who are just bound up by chains, and you have the honor of, of working alongside them to, to, to show them what it's like to be a forgiven person of Christ. So I, I love this story because Thomas is here um thomas is just a uh, he's i wouldn't quite say he's a rascal but he's 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 getting close to kind of rascal status i guess um i'm just really glad that he's here john the the author of this gospel he didn't have to write thomas into the story there's not really um anything that would be lost in this uh there are books in the bible where there's like fragments that appear to be missing and and it's like well we we still have a very rich robust theology um and, and I think that that could be the case with this, um, because there's not a whole lot of theological significance to the story of Thomas. But you see, John, the writer of this gospel, he's not just a writer, he's not even just a, an apostle, he's also a pastor. And he's writing to his people, he's writing to the churches who are under his care. He's writing to you and to me. He's so clearly writing this to be a message that gets proclaimed from generation to generation, and he wants us to know the story of Thomas, because pastorally, there is an immense importance to this story. In fact, I, I love that this passage, this is the passage that's always read the second Sunday of Easter. Every single year, we're going to come back to this over and over again. This is such a beautiful passage. We'll, we'll spend so much time looking, if, if you claim restoration is your home, there's a lot of time that we'll be looking at the story of Thomas. And I read this story, and, and I hear Thomas speaking, and I think, that's me. That's me right there, right here in the the passage. I would have been the guy who's like out running errands, you know, out shopping or whatever it is he's doing, and I would have been the guy who misses out on it. And he's asking the questions that all of us are asking in our hearts. Like, who reads this and thinks, wow, I've never been there before? Like, we've all been there before. We've all asked this question. We've all said, Jesus, why can't I see you more? Jesus, I want to touch you right now. Why can't I feel you? Jesus, I want to I hear your voice right now. Be real to me, Jesus. And so I love that this story is here. Now, again, I don't know why, why Thomas is absent from this first meeting. Maybe he was out running an errand. That's, that's possible. But maybe he was paralyzed with fear. He didn't want to associate with the other apostles in this moment because he knew that stuff was going down in Jerusalem. Maybe he's angry, who knows what's going on. But for whatever reason he's not there. He's absent and he doesn't get to see Jesus risen from the dead. And over the course of the week though, the ap- the other apostles are, are hounding him. It's like, "No, no, seriously, Thomas, we saw him." He's like, "No, I'm not buying this." "Thomas, I'm serious, we saw him." And like day after day this goes by. This goes by. And then on the next Sunday, that is 8 days later, the Jews counted the day that that they were in so eight days later on the next sunday thomas this time is with them and jesus appears and again jesus speaks peace and then this time jesus walks up to thomas and he has this special moment with thomas and do you see how patient and kind jesus is there's no scolding that goes on here either he doesn't call thomas a hypocrite for not believing he doesn't call out the fact that he wasn't there last week. There's no shaming that goes on here. No, instead, Jesus invites Thomas to touch his wounds. Like probably the one of the most intimate things that, that Jesus could ask anyone in that moment to do. And then he invites Thomas to trust him, to believe in him. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's transforming our absence into intimacy. Absence to Intimacy. And then from the fruit of that, from Thomas' mouth, we hear one of the grandest confessions in all the New Testament of who Jesus is.
1: My Lord
0: and my God. My Lord and my God. My Lord, emphasizing that kingship, that authority of who Jesus is. And my God, recognizing you are divine. You are Yahweh incarnate here in the flesh, standing before me. My Lord and my God. You see, friends, Jesus transforms our absence into intimacy. So, friends, you made it through Lent. You made it through Lent. Maybe it was your first time. Maybe it was your 101st time. I don't know. But now here we are in the great season of the resurrection. And now, friends, this is the season of fasting. Or a season of feasting, not fasting. We're we're done with that. Karen, you went, huh? (laughs) Season of feasting a season in which our fear turn turned to joy, our weakness into authority, and our absence into intimacy. So friends, let us pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we are feeble creatures. We are worried by war, and we are weak without you. So Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would breathe your Holy Spirit into this room. May you fill our lungs with you and your power and who you are. Fill us with joy, Lord. Fill us with intimacy with you. Fill us with knowledge of who you are, that we might confess to one another, to ourselves, and to the world around us, that you are my Lord and my God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.